philosophers in space, 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 space. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your pain? Physical or emotional? Are we sure we should be paying attention to these guys? It's like who died and left Aristotle in charge of ethics? Plato! Sure, we all feel alive now, but how do we know it's not all, you know, just an illusion? Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's gonna die. Come watch TV. Hello and welcome to Philosophers in Space. This is episode 41. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. That over there is Aaron Rabai. And uh, we were going to do, we were going to do Today I Am Paul. We're still going to do it. But in Aaron's sleep last night, he was visited by several <laughs> ghosts. It was actually several boxes came to visit Aaron in his sleep last night. <laughs> Each more the terrifying box of episodes the past, the box of episodes present, and the box of episodes future. And, and they convinced him to do a little Christmas episode. It's, it's uh, Merry Christmas, everybody, from the void, from the bottom of our void. Merry Christmas. How's it going, Aaron? Oh, it's going pretty good. Uh, how? Uh, I was curious when you when you suggested this. The first thing that came to mind was, um, what would you be visited with if you had to like? What would someone terrify change you with if they were going to try to change your behavior? Like, what is Ooh. what is your future? Like, what's the horror? scary first first ghost? You mean? Yeah, like the, yeah, like the, like you know, like what are they the pointing to? Where they're like, oh God, I gotta fix this right now. Man, well, I guess it kind of depends on what they're. What are they trying to have me fix? I mean, I'm not that evil. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, there are probably a couple of things that. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. You're like, having I'm a not second child nothing, just... soon, for example. I mean, <laughs> they no, could be antinatalist ghosts. <laughs> there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing they can show me that's more <laughs> visceral than the experience of how great having a kid is. So. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's gonna be <laughs> good luck. I mean, you could try, but. And there's nothing that will show me that my incremental contribution to the problem is so serious that like I alone have to change my behavior. Right. <laughs> Tragedy of the commons. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they could show me somehow like the data that like my literally my one kid that's we've replaced ourselves now, you know, like that's going to be the difference between like massive life and death stuff. Yeah, that, that could be, I guess. But, um, you know. There's some debate, uh, huge debate, uh, whether or not the, A Christmas Carol is actually sci-fi. And uh, I was wondering what your take on that is. Yeah, no, I think um, we're going to definitely stretch the bounds of our premise here, but I think it qualifies. It has uh, unexplained phenomenon like ghosts, mm. which show up, you know, every other season in Star Trek, let's be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. It involves Dun -dun -dun -dun. time travel. Uh, I think it's probably just a Doctor Who episode, I think, if we're being <laughs> honest, right? Like, uh, let, me, let me tell you this. Without knowing anything about Doctor Who canon, I am 99%. True, 99 I do not know anything about Right. No, oh, I thought you were going to pose something to me because I was no. like, yeah, I can't help you. No, I no. Know nothing about I'm going to pose something for myself. I am 99% <laughs> certain that there is a Doctor Who uh, Christmas Carol episode. There's got to be something. <laughs> I mean, odds wise, this <laughs> right. is like, well, many worlds. Uh, yeah, this is like many worlds, or I was going to say, you know, Boltzmann brains. Like, 
There's so much Doctor Who that at some point the particles involved in Doctor Who just arrange themselves into a Christmas Carol episode. Like, right. you know it happened. Right. On a long it, enough, it, on a long enough timeline. In fact, if you don't believe us, go back and check every episode. You can't even just rely on the descriptions. Do you have to actually go through every episode? Because you never know. And then only then. <laughs> Or immediately, we we're wrong? you could just go to the Philosophers in Space group where someone will have already linked the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure actual Doctor Who is in our group somewhere. So mm-hmm. like, whoever the Doctor is. Um, yeah, no, I'm excited. It is pretty much a Doctor Who episode. And uh, I also have to say that I already posted about this. Oh, this might have just been on my personal Facebook, but... I saw the Muppets on the uh, Muppets Christmas Carol on the big screen like it was intended. <laughs> it was playing at a, a theater in uh, in Sacramento here, and I went and saw it, and it was amazing. And it was filled with, or, or the room was filled with a bunch of uh, like-minded people who recognize it as the great contribution to cinema that it is. Probably one of my legitimately one of my favorite movies of all time. That's a pretty I, short version to go see in the theater. Isn't yeah, it? it is a pretty short, and they they cut the you know the the super sappy song that that mm. for some reason is not. I can't remember which version it is in. It was in the version that we had the VHS of as little kids, nice. but it's for some reason yeah. Right. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> I love that movie more than pretty much anything else, and uh, gets me every time. I think it's it's like a fan. I, I'm being a hundred percent serious. It's it's so good. Like mm-hmm. it's it, it's a fantastic. First of all. The greatest story ever told. I mean, this is such a good story. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's uh, an author. Let me see if I get his name. Uh, you might have heard of, you know, young up and coming sci-fi author, uh, Charles Di- Charlie Dickens. Charles. That last sorry, name something sounds like, like a pseudonym, Dickens. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, fantastic language and, and uh, just a great story. And then you combine it with the genius of, uh, well, it was right after Jim Henson died. But I mean, the genius of Jim Henson. the Muppet. And by the way, Michael Caine delivering a Shakespeare level performance of, you know, uh, uh, just a fantastic performance as Scrooge. It's, it's so good. I absolutely love his, it's, I love acting. I do a little acting. I, I, I feel like for me, I kind of tend to enjoy, I I know what I enjoy in acting, you know, and I know what performances I enjoy and I don't. And I, I just love his performance. I could watch it anytime, anytime. It, there, it's mm-hmm. so there's so much realism in it despite he's acting with Muppets and there's so much there's more realism in Michael Caine's performance than most anything you'll see today and and he's like talking to a friggin giant Muppet like it's yeah uh, it's so incredible anyway I, I, I could gush about it forever but uh, I thought it would be really fun to talk about you know I guess the original is a Muppets Christmas Carol but we can talk about some of the remakes <laughs> like the book and the uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched the black and white version every summer, or every, yeah, every winter, remake. obviously, like every um, Christmas growing up uh, with my father, um, which is super weird that, but you know, it was just something that my, it was a particular one that my father really loved. And so we would watch it and it, it has some really great moments in it, some great acting as well. Um, and some interesting social commentary um, that, you know, gets truncated a little bit maybe in the um, the Muppet version. I do love Rizzo though, right? Uh, is that the name, right? The, the rat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Island in the Sun is a is a reoccurring reference around our household. And, oh, uh, from Treasure Island. 
No, no. Or, or oh. no, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it yeah. says my island in the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Rizzo's not involved in that. That's the bookkeeping rat. So he's, oh, sorry. he threw me off. Sorry, Rizzo sorry. I thought, the, I thought yeah. that was the name of the bookkeeping rat was Rizzo. My mistake. It was Rizzo no, the rat. No, Rizzo, <laughs> I love it because in the credits it says Rizzo plays himself. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. And uh, no, Rizzo's just along for the ride. The bookkeeping rats are the ones who sing the island in the sun. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they don't really have names. They're just the, okay. you know. But anyway, um, no, I love it. And, uh, but... I thought it would be cool to talk about, you know, because it, it actually does relate to a lot of things we've we've touched on here and a lot of philosophy that I am interested in. Uh, and I, I, I think you are, too, which mm-hmm. is, you know, sometimes I like to think about taking um, taking religious people at their word and figuring out like, OK, what would an afterlife actually look like and, and like how ethical would it be? And we, we've talked about this with Good Place mm-hmm. uh, and I can't wait. Hopefully we'll talk about it with forever a little bit some point yeah um because just all there's so many different versions of afterlife and and there's so many ethical questions about that and about like you know what motivates someone to be good um you know and, and a lot of ethical questions a lot of philosophy questions that i thought we could we could take on with this so i think we should step into the muppet exposition zone <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's and that, that means we have to like sing a delightful tune <laughs> while we do it i think uh <laughs> You're traveling through another dimension beyond that which is known to podcasters. It is the middle ground between fair use and copyright infringement, between ordinary fanboying and meaningful analysis. It is the exposition zone. Uh. No, I mean we'll we'll just do we'll we'll do very. It's everyone knows the story, but the but what I think is important though, I just want to highlight a few things that that I think are a little important is, uh, you know, the basics of the story. We got Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's a real Scrooge. I, I mean, it's it's kind of coincidental, but <laughs> this guy, I, I mean, it's, it's a little on the nose, I would say, the naming of the character is Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little archetypal, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little, a little, not, little Peterson. Not since Lou Gehrig got Lou Gehrig's disease <laughs> was there a more coincidental name. <laughs> the least luckiest man in the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, no, and and yeah, of course he's he's a wretched old miser. He's a tight-fisted uh, hand of the grindstone, uh, is Scrooge. Um, and uh, he's he's basically you know at a time when there wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of protections for people, you know, the the commoners, the the, the people who might buy mortgages and pe- that that kind of thing. This was a real libertarian. The glory paradise. days of free market yeah. capitalism, I think, is what you mean. <laughs> Right, where you, he's all about evicting people on Christmas and maximizing uh, you know, profit. Yes, go on. Yeah, <laughs> taking taking back houses at a at a you know if that you miss one payment or you're late on one payment, just just screwing the hell out of the the common man. Enforcing contracts uh, and necessities in society. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Yeah. And uh, you know it's it's about his redemption, of course, which I love. It's it's hard to not like a good old fashioned redemption story. Um, and he's in order to begin this process of redemption, he's visited by first, you know, we, we got the Marley brothers. We got Jacob and Robert Marley, which are the delightful in the in the in the Muppet version, of course, the, the delightful old man heckler uh, Muppets. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think that's important to talk about because there it's like I think threat of punishment is really the first thing that that that, that kind of starts this along the way. And I kind of would argue that that's not really what does it, though, in the end, mm. um, which I think is interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. But at a time, you know, in the in the 1800s sometime where I'm sure 
as much as religion and Christianity tends to be really liberal now, you know, it's, it's hard to pin down a lot of people. You know, you talk to them, hey, do you really believe in a fiery hell? Well, no, I just, I kind of believe in it. You know, it, it gets really wishy-washy and whatever. I imagine back in the 1800s, that wasn't really the case. I imagine it was much more, oh no, this is fire and brimstone. Like there's going to be, there's going to be chains. There's going to be all this stuff uh, for the, for the bad people. And, you know, that's what I did want to talk about was kind of that, like the, the kind of different ways his character, you know, is, is pushed to, to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and of course he's visited by the three ghosts. He's visited by the past, which shows him kind of goes into his past and present, uh, in which he's, he's kind of sees the present conditions of, of people who he sometimes somehow now cares about. And I'm curious in the versions, you know, like it, obviously the Muppet version is a little truncated, but, uh, but like how much is there there? Because mm-hmm. it's interesting to talk about, you know, this, this, this threat of hell. I've always thought it was the most curious philosophical thing. First off, the idea that like a God would make this thing like that anybody like this would be your system. Like you got this one life and then after if you mess it up, even though you don't have proper proof of anything, then you're tortured forever, which is just nonsense. But then there's also the question of like, well, even if that were true, does it really make you good if. The only reason you are good is because you're worried about a horrible thing happening to you after death, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a it's a really important ethical question of uh, should you be doing it out of pure love for what is right versus out of fear of some kind of punishment? Just like, you know, like we feel like it might be questionable sometimes if you're doing it purely for the carrot as well. Like, yeah. Um, and I, I do love that over the course of a christmas carol it's it's like a it's a fully fleshed out morality tale in the sense that it shows all the different kinds of things that can pull on your morality like regret and guilt and and yeah. compassion and fear like all these different things i think you know it's you know you asked like uh uh what is it that really does it what is it that pushes him over the edge when we were talking about doing this before and like I'm not sure it's any one thing. I think it may be the sort of sum total of all of these parts of what it is to be a, a full-fledged human that he has forgotten. Yeah, yeah. As far as his character goes, mm-hmm. I get the sense that it's, you know, mm-hmm. it, he's always been kind of an introvert, kind of a shut off toward other people kind of person and got obsessed with, which is something, it's, it's really interesting. I always think about, you know, super wealthy people, which at it for his time, it seems like Scrooge would have been immensely wealthy, like relative to the average person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, I don't I don't know if you're talking today's like billionaires or something. I think about today's billionaires and a lot of them, you know, like Bill and Melinda Gates um, are doing incredible stuff. But you know how many like multimillionaires there are that probably just don't care about, <laughs> you know, like barely help or donate or do anything. And and furthermore, not just that, it's it's interesting that as human beings and I and I'm not even necessarily suggesting that like you or I wouldn't easily fall into this if we weren't you know mm-hmm. if we were in the situation who knows sure. but like when you're making you, you look at it all the time with like NFL players or, or any professional sports players like if you're making 20 million but then some other guy is making 25 million you're like oh man <laughs> mm-hmm. this sucks like <laughs> I can't I should be more value and it's so interesting that no matter when you step back and look at like okay this is a 
this is just an embarrassment of riches. Like I've got so much money. I'm making millions of dollars here, tens of millions of dollars. And and we could leave out the concerns for, if, with football. Like you got to make your whole amount early on because your career is going to be so short. But 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 just but even setting that aside, like mm-hmm. if you're a you've got a hedge fund or something or you've got some some way that you've got just tens of millions of dollars um, that it doesn't seem like is going away anytime soon. It's interesting that we turn it into as humans, we turn it into a game of like, well, no, this is the value system and I need to acquire more of this value point. You know, like this is mm-hmm. that's what life becomes for a lot of people. You know, it's really it's really weird. Yeah, we talk about in ethics something called the hedonic treadmill. We may have mentioned it before on here. Yeah. Um, where it's like it's like when you get addicted to a drug, right? And your your baseline for well being without the drug starts to decrease and so you need more of the drug just to get back to your baseline of well being. You can see that kind of hedonic treadmill play out in a capitalist system where people start to acquire things and as a result they acquire attachment and as a result they acquire a need for more security and so they need more things and so it it builds and builds and builds on itself and i think um it's amazing that so early on dickens was seeing this this terrible situation kind of arising as a result of this and now we see it sort of to the nth degree in modern american culture it seems like um and like, I think it's a really fascinating question what it is that takes one of those individuals and makes them someone more like Bill Gates who, you know, feels the need to put a bunch of that money back towards helping other people or something. Like, how, how do you flip that switch in individuals, I think, is a really interesting moral psychology question um, on top of, like, what ought you to do with regard to yeah. capitalist well, systems. Well, I think it would be interesting to talk about a Christmas Carol, because mm-hmm. given that you know we're both atheists and stuff, and I'm sure most people listening will be, um, I, I'm interested in how much the message, because to me it's still powerfully compelling, mm-hmm. and I wonder, I wonder how much it survives a non-religious worldview, and that's kind of what I've been interested in and in, in okay. doing this for an episode, you know, because yeah. like I think for him, like first talking about it religiously, obviously there's the punishment component, you know, that that would motivate him. Uh, but but like there's also a sense that for someone like Scrooge, who's an older man and he's done nothing but like I love in early on the descriptions of, you know, darkness is cheap and Scrooge likes like he's still he's got nothing but resources, mm-hmm. but is still permanently in this mode, kind of on the hedonic uh, treadmill, probably like you you've talked about where it's it's always he's just it just is ingrained into him to be this way, to save, to mm-hmm. to to, you know, to still be screwing people out of money he doesn't even need. You know, yeah. and to reset his um, to kind of reset his point of view a little bit to look for like now when you talk religiously again, we're going to talk from that frame. First of all, it does make sense of like, OK, you've got an afterlife to think about. Like, yes, you're you know, you're doing all this in this life, but you, you might be dead any day now. And what, what's you know, like you, you've got an afterlife to think about. But then switching to an atheist worldview, I think a lot of the message still survives, which is like, what are you saving all this for? You know, like what mm-hmm. you you could die at any time. And then what's all that money you've stockpiled from screwing people over? What is it? What good is it going to do? You know, yeah. especially in, uh, in 19th century England, who knows what the laws were there? Probably all goes to the government or some crap like they <laughs> totally <laughs> who knows. Right. Yeah. Like, um, the black and white version, which I love very much, um, 
really plays up a lot of the stuff you're describing. So his house is really drab and like empty and minimal. And like, it feels like he isn't enjoying any of this. Like he goes and eats a meal by himself and it's a very boring, incomplete kind of meal. Like he's not benefiting from all of this money that he's built up over the course of this. And then um, as he starts to, you know, go through the transformation, he starts to see alternative ways of having wealth and value and that yeah. that really is and i think you're right that to point out that it like it transcends uh the religious narrative because it's almost i i, I was thinking a lot of it in terms of greek um accounts of mm. a good death versus a bad death right the greeks are really obsessed with what it means to lead a good life where a good life means not just a good life but a good kind of death a death where you are remembered in the right kind of ways um, and also just like you see it sometimes in the, the Eastern traditions as well, where it's like the goal isn't to get into some place where you are happy and rewarded for your behavior. The goal is to be remembered in a kind of way, like the honor of having mm -hmm. that kind of memory carried on by people of thinking of you as a, as a particularly good person. So like uh, at the end of the uh, Christmas Carol, when he sees his own grave, Right. It's I think it's terrifying, not because it means he's going to go to a place of being tortured and poked with sticks and stuff. It's terrifying because no one cares and there's no one yeah. around to see it. And there's a beautiful and they're, indeed. They're happy. He's dead. Right. I don't I don't remember if this is in the, the Muppet version, but in the black and white version, there's a sequence where he's shown what happens to his stuff after he dies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that is. OK. Yeah. Version. So it's amazing because like you were saying it like what happens to all of this resources that he's built up? It gets auctioned off by people who don't like him like yeah all of his stuff it doesn't matter it doesn't accrue to anything and the people who benefit from it despise him while doing it yeah so. yeah it's so profound to me and uh, i have to say this is just one of my absolute favorite moments in the in the muppet version i it, it's so darkly kind of humorous to me and, and and human is you know michael Caine's having this this part where he's finally going to go see, you know, the gravestone. Is it actually him that was dead that, that people are kind of happy about, you know, and he's pleading with the the uh, ghost that scared the crap out of me as a child. <laughs> uh, and and he, he's, he's walk he's kind of walking over the gravestone. And he's like, oh, you know, these things can be changed, right? Like, why are you showing me all this? It can't be changed. And, and there's a point where he kind of he does a point like, oh, this gravestone, like a different one. <laughs> like, God, it's so good to me. Like. Oh, this one of the, 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 you know, the giant Muppets like, no, no, it's this one, you know, like just it. I have no idea if that's in the book or anything, but like, it, it's so funny to me. It's such a human moment. You know, he really tries it's the not, British uh, his way out of it. He's like, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> I'm charmingly befuddled. Which of these gravestones yeah. <laughs> should I look at? Uh, uh, so good. Um, um, and, but, but I, I think you bring up excellent points. And, and I do think that, you know, when we talk about ethical systems as, Again, as atheists and, mm -hmm. and not simply a punishment based, you better be good. Otherwise, you know, the afterlife is going to punish you. It, I do feel like it. I don't know that it all survives the other way, though. Like, I don't know if morality is ever, especially when you're talking about massive systems of humans. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it ever works perfectly as like, a, you know, you have to do the right thing because it's the right thing, even though no one will ever find out about it. Like, it does seem to be this big amalgamation of like. There's punishment involved, but you know, there's also there's also probably plenty of moral decisions you and I could make every day 
that we could do the wrong thing and never be punished for it ever. Mm-hmm. And like, that's always, that, that's, an, that's an argument you hear religious people make. Like, well, then what's to stop anybody from doing such and such when no one's looking, no one will ever find out about it. And my, my answer has always been, well, there's really nothing to stop them. And like, and uh-huh. I think uh, reality bears that out. Like people do bad stuff all the time. Yeah. You know, like this is, this, um, this, yeah. In, in Plato, this is called the ring of Gyges problem. You know, if you had an invisibility ring, why would you still up, be moral? Yeah. Right, right. Right. It's the invisible man, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, it is a, a hard question. And I, I personally, as a moral realist, think that there are things that would stop you if you are habituated correctly. This is why I'm a virtue theorist a lot of the time. Like, I think the answer to that problem is if you train someone to value the right kind of things in the right kind of way they will value them even when there are no consequences. Yeah. And it's, there's also this absolutism to it, you know, Mm -hmm. like the idea that if there isn't some ultimate arbiter in the sky, then in the end it's all meaningless. And, and I guess my feeling, what I'm trying to say is like, it, it, it's not all black and white. Like there's, it's not all everything is, is definitely going to be accounted for by the great, you know, accountant in the sky or everything's chaos. It's like no, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird system that works in a way. Like we 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 do have to try to hold each other to account to stuff, but like also we might not be able to. And like sometimes you know, like the the just the casual stuff. You you might uh, oh you tap somebody's car and man, ah, did you leave enough of a dent where you got to leave a note? You're never gonna be caught. Like it's it's stuff where it's like yeah, you can get away with just probably just driving off. Like most most likely you can 100% get away with it, but like do you want to live in that world, you know, or do you want to try to be a part of a moral system where people do leave notes for stuff like that? And and it, it, what, what I think, um, is frustrating to me about that religious argument, like, like you need some ultimate arbiter judging everybody is like reality just shows this that doesn't work either. Like even when people believe that it doesn't <laughs> work, you know, like people are still evil. They still do bad things for, they think they're doing the right thing or they don't care. They make mistakes or they're human. They make mistakes, whatever it is. And that doesn't strike me as a counter argument, you know, like Mm -hmm. look at reality. Reality is full of people doing horrible things all the time and what accounts for that best, you know? And I, I, I also think another thing you said Mm -hmm. made me think about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, habituating people properly. Um, I think that in a, from a secular lens, a Christmas Carol can really, it, it, it can really be a story of like refocusing your moral intuition, you know, like Mm -hmm. you, you can get, you can lose focus on stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. even if you are ostensibly a good person, you can simply not be focused on the right outcomes or the right, you know, the right consequences of what you've been doing, the right, whatever it is. And part of the process of the non-supernatural or non-religious process of a Christmas carol is showing Scrooge, like, here's the people you employ and like, here's how crappy mm-hmm. their Christmas mm-hmm. is, you know, like. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think my answer to this problem is empathy. And I I stand by that Mm -hmm. still. I know there's been some pushback on the value of empathy and ethics, but I think the reality, both psychologically and, and morally, in terms of what is really true, is 
the thing that should motivate you most is the sequence where you see Tiny Tim. Like, if you yeah. don't feel something when you see Tiny Tim, no amount of reasoning is going to save you. Like, you need yeah. to feel something. And it, and that is that is the thing we need to habituate, your ability to feel something in that situation. And that's well, why these stories are so it, valuable, right? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, I have to say, because I actually read that, Paul Bloom against empathy book years ago, a couple (laughs) years ago. And I have to say that like, had that book been called for compassion, which I believe is his entire effing thesis. His entire thesis is, Oh, empathy is not quite right. You need a more targeted compassion thing where it's like, Uh. it's mode. It's empathy plus, you know, facts and statistics that help you not get carried away. You know, if we empathize too much with a, with a dog that's lost, (laughs) You know, or something like we can. And it's it's he's 100 percent right about this. Like we can get too focused on things that aren't good to focus on and then forget all about all the children dying somewhere of malaria. You know, like 100 percent. Right. But had the name of the book been for compassion, mm-hmm. it never would have had the same impact that it had with a bunch of like uh a-holes on Twitter that I have to argue with all the time. Oh, haven't you read this book? Like empathy is point. You don't need empathy, you know, just completely dismissing the idea that we need to, you know, like keep people's feelings in check because they read the title of a book and didn't really understand what it was. And I do Mm -hmm. hold the author to account with this, by the way, like he did obviously do this to try to be, to raise eyebrows. Yeah. I, I, this is why you're getting into the good place. I appreciate your work here. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I think, you know, we can split hairs over what we mean by empathy, but what I mean, you know, fundamentally what I think I mean is the ability to, um, in a, in a very vividly imaginative way, put yourself into the place of the person that you are trying to, that you are affecting and figure out what the right way to act is in relation to them. It's not a perfect mechanism, but it's like, you know, like you were, you know, it's the golden rule. It's so many things. It's at the root of so many ethical intuitions. And I think it's the, the mechanism that this is like when, when Scrooge wakes up, right? What's the first thing he does? He goes and he demands that someone buy a large piece of food for that poor tiny <laughs> child. Like that—that yeah. that is the thing that motivates him more than anything else. It's not getting his name, you know, put on something else. It's not approval of anything other than the people who have suffered because of his behavior. Hmm. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I sorry, this branches off a no, little go bit, ahead. Uh, and. Uh, I have a couple thoughts, so I'll probably save one of them for after dark. I'm trying to figure out which uh, time has flown because I just love this topic and I love this uh, piece of art. I think it's so good. Both original, this obviously. This is my island story in the sun. La, 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 la. So good. Um, you know, when you talk about uh, him not wanting his name to be whatever and, and he just wants to fix the things, I think that's great. I also think as a society... I wonder if we would do better if we didn't have this weird, what's the word, like phobia or this this kind of norm around, well, you should never give to charity to for, for recognition. Like you shouldn't, if you're going to give to charity, you should do it quietly. You shouldn't, people shouldn't even know about, and I kind of, you know, in some ways I, that's, I think that's total BS. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a, a weird hyper like Jesus-y standard that we don't need. Like imagine if people were just like, huh, I gave to charity, you know, like, and, and people were like, oh, congrats, man. Good. That's, you know what? You both sought and deserve recognition 
for whoever you helped, you know, like in a weird way, this idea that you need to be anonymous or like if you give to charity, but you do it just for recognition, then that's that's, you know, that's just as bad as not even doing it. And then it's like, well, talk to the kids who aren't dead of malaria because of the money that this person does, you know, like, do they think that it's just the same as not getting the help that they needed? And I think the answer would clearly be no. And I wonder if we would be better served as a society if we got rid of that stigma around, you know, mm-hmm. like if somebody donates $10,000 to an a, amazing charity, I, I, for one, like, don't care if they want a pat on the back. You know, what if they're like, I want a pat on the back for this? I'd be like, okay, here's your pat on the back. That's awesome. You helped people. That's really cool. What, what if, if that doesn't deserve a pat on the back, I don't know what deserves a pat on the back, but there's this yeah. weird, like hyper, I, I don't know where it comes from. It's this like Jesus-y impulse that we can't want credit for it. You know, we have to like not want any credit for it. Yeah. Well, there's some, I mean, there's secular versions of that problem too. So, um, yeah, no, I don't mean to say it's only, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah. don't have a good word for it. Like I literally don't I'm trying to think like, where do you think that comes from? Um, I think it comes, I mean, in, in the religious world, it comes from, um, I think, a fixation on altruism and a specific kind of altruism as being the moral ideal. Um, in the secular world, you see it a lot with like Kantianism, where uh, Kant argued that morality has to be derived purely from reason, and that if your morality is based on your sentiments or your preferences, that it's not a full-fledged morality and won't be reliable because if your preferences or sentiments change, you know, you'll be capricious in your moral application. So I think I think the the most generous justification behind it is that if it's just because you want to be rewarded for doing it, you won't do it as reliably and it won't be <laughs> it won't be as valuable. You'll do it in a way that is more performative and less effective. Whereas my theory is that it's just people who don't do good things want to be able to take down people who do do good things. <laughs> could I mean, there could be some of that, too. Like, I mean, people feel embarrassed and so they lash out. Like, I think you're totally right in the in the the majority here in the sense that, like, um, we should let people get credit for this, let them get habituated towards doing it more by positive reinforcement. Now, we need to counterbalance that with a critique of you know people who amass massive quantities of wealth via the capitalist system and then turn around and distribute parts of that wealth in ways where they then want a bunch of access and credit in exchange for doing so that can be morally very problematic um but i think there are there's you know gradations of morality here essentially yeah well, we are already out of time. I'm going to save my After Dark Thoughts. I really want to talk about uh, how kids... I, there, I observed something the other day with uh, my brother that I think was was pretty interesting along these regards, but how kids change your, your moral feelings and decisions, mm. uh, I think I'll save for After Dark. Um, but that said, uh, I, thanks for indulging me, uh, Aaron, and, and listeners with this episode. <laughs> I I really do love this... this uh, this this piece of art and I love I, I just think the questions are really interesting and and they are really you know ap- applicable to our everyday lives and it makes a great Christmas special and you know what it's exactly the kind of thing that our listeners wouldn't think that we would do I feel like which is exactly why I wanted to do it it is it is super <laughs> sappy and saccharine for love someone it. who <laughs> Merry Christmas everybody oh ho, ho. <laughs> way to play against type you heal <laughs> 
Uh, good stuff. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, and of course, we've got to do our things that we always have to do, which is to say, what are we going to talk about next week? Aaron Rabbi. Uh, yeah. So next week, we are going to do the thing that we, we were planning to do this week before <laughs> you absconded with our timeline. How dare you? We are going to do Today I Am Paul, which is a short story that we will uh, share out as well um, about um, the use of AIs in elder care. And it's one of my favorite short stories that I've read in the past year or so. And I'm excited to talk about it. It is fantastic. I'm really excited as well. It's uh, I definitely give it a read. It's also in podcast format. So if if there's anybody who's less of a, you know, visually ready person like I am, uh, you can find a podcast version of it. And uh, it's, it's really excellent. So looking forward to that. And then, of course, we've got to thank our top patrons. Aaron, what do our top patrons have to uh, make you say this week? Yeah, special thanks to sex bots should be called compubines. That's a good one. And chief of staff, Dick Mulvaney. Wow, those are some very after darky kinds of thank yous. All righty. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and... Uh, We'll see you next week, and we'll see you after dark for some bonus talk here. If you're on patreon.com slash zero G, hop on over and check it out. Are there no workhouses? <laughs> oh, also, we're going to have a, a bonus movie thingy soon. So definitely more than it's one reason to hop on over to patreon.com slash zero G. So we, we, maybe we should have promoted that. Do you want to do it now? Uh, yeah, we're doing what <laughs> we're, we're starting <laughs> off NASA in the only way that we could. We're doing <laughs> Battlefield Earth. Yeah, it's like it's just widely recognized <laughs> as volume one of the worst sci-fi <laughs> stuff you have to do. Like, it's like, OK, naturally yeah. you would start there like you have to. So very excited for that. Uh, that will, of course, be a patron benefit and uh, hop on over and check it out and more. So we'll see you after that. <laughs> That's all for the main show, but if you'd like to go to patreon.com slash zero G, you can enjoy Philosophers in Space after dark. Here's a little sneak peek for you. But what's interesting about having kids and morality, you know, that I'm thinking of more and more is that they're these little lie detectors and th this has been a burst transmission of philosophers in space all music written and performed by thomas smith if you've enjoyed your infotainment upload please locate the nearest podcast interface device and fill it with five-star ratings and glowing reviews if you think ground control should spring for fun new goodies and content consider supporting us at patreon.com slash zero g you can find us on Twitter at Zero G Philosophy, where Aaron will instantly and compulsively respond. Or you can email us at philosophersinspace at gmail.com. Finally, if you're sad that it takes so long for our signals to reach Earth, you can always find Thomas over at Serious Inquiries Only and Opening Arguments, and Aaron over at Embrace the Void. Until next time, live long and philosopher. <laughs>